Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. We are stymieing our own ability to equip our own people and survive in an increasingly competitive world. It's such an act of national self-harm. We need every good brain we can get. Whatever happens and whoever wins, I do think we will see a backlash as a result of getting rid of Boris. This isn't the sentence you hear your co-pilot use very often, but Keir Starmer did make a really good impression this week. My God! <laughs> One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Well, the Tory leadership contest rumbles on. The intrepid candidates ventured north of the border to Perth this week and also to Northern Ireland. Who cares about the cost of living crisis as inflation hits double digits? There's still four more hustings to go before we get a new Prime Minister. But this is a nerve-wracking time, Alison, not just for leadership hopefuls Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, but for hundreds of thousands of six-formers as they look to confirm those precious university places. Nerve-wracking for their parents and grandparents too. Because today, Thursday, as Planet Normal is launched for another week is A-Level Results Day. There seems to be a new A-Level fiasco each year, and this year's concern is that high numbers of young hopefuls literally won't make the grade, missing out on their first-choice university. During the last two years of lockdown, of course, we've relied on teacher-assessed grades instead of exams, resulting inevitably in huge numbers of A's and A-stars. Amidst moves to rein in grade inflation and with top unis awarding so many places to foreign students who pay much higher fees... Competition for places is particularly stiff. This is a subject, Alison, which has really got your goat. You've written a powerful (laughs) column in Wednesday's Telegraph. There's a link to it in the show notes to this episode. Hard work used to get kids into top universities. Today, you've written co-pilot. That couldn't be further from the truth. What's my goat called? The one I've got. Billy Goat Gruff. (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember that three Billy Goats Gruff and the troll used to live under the bridge? God... I couldn't sleep age three because of that troll under the bridge of three Billy Goats Gruff. That was really scary, wasn't it? The I know. Billy Goats Gruff. I know. I'm called the Wilhelmina Goat Gruff. Or just Gruff. Gruff <laughs> Reese Jones. Before we launch into the A level fiasco, we just got to quickly get out of the way the numpty of the week. You know, Copilot, I don't think the rocket is sufficiently far away from planet Earth because I'm a bit worried that the madness now is just getting out of control. So this week, the Scottish government appointed a man as its first, do you wait for this, period dignity officer. Oh, 
God. Now, I called him Tam Pax in my column, but that's not his real name, obviously. <laughs> He's called Jason Grant. And Jason says, I think being a man will help me to break down barriers, reduce stigma and encourage more open discussion. I believe I can make progress. This quote, this, this, this isn't just a female topic. Yes, it bloody well is. <laughs> Oh my. You know, as all those small businesses around the country, all those cash-trapped households struggle to get the money together to pay their taxes, <laughs> struggle to get through the autumn and winter of discontent, they will be nurtured. They will feel warm in their heart because their hard-earned taxpayer money is being used to fund a male period dignity officer. <laughs> what have we become? I mean... That must have been through multiple committees. There were so many chances for sentient human beings to say that's a really bad idea and no one spoke up. And that's how mad ideas become reality because people don't speak up. No, Tayside Authority have said that Jason was the best qualified person for, for the job. Anyway, uh, moving on from that madness, as you said, co-pilot, the uh, A-levels, of course, have now become a, a well-loved national tradition, like the first cuckoo of spring, the day of the exam results fiasco. And as you said, the class of 2022, let's remember this is boys and girls who've lived through the pandemic with Zoom classes and being sent home every time some child sneezes because we can't get any teacher not being COVID safe, can we, co-pilot? That would be dreadful compared to ruining thousands of children's education. So yeah, the class of 22 have been warned that their results may be disappointing, which is pretty much code for the system swinging back to a midpoint between the inflationary largesse of the pandemic exams, which, as you said, were marked by teachers and the normal 2019 exams. Now, Liam, you'll love this. This dramatic fall in grades you'd think would be a rather crucial detail, but the government and UCAS failed to share this with the students until after the whole university application process was completed. So young people's offers, all those young people opening their laptops this morning, we used to go into, did you go into school to get yours? We had to oh, yeah. go and stand and look at a piece of paper. But anyway, they'll all be opening their laptops and their offers will be based on the much more generous grades of last year. So universities are supposed to adjust accordingly, although personally, I think it's pretty likely that the pass rate will drop like a stone and many poor kids who've suffered enough, I think, will lose the place they've set their hearts on. And I predict, Liam, that there will be a crazy stampede for clearing once all the grades are known. That's basically when you ring up universities, you ring round trying to get a place with the grades that you've then got in your hand. That's right. Rather than predicted grades. And if you haven't got the grade for politics at York, you know, they might say, well, if you do archaeology or anthropology or something. So don't despair, actually, if there's only 17, 18 year olds, listen, don't despair because this happened to my son a few years ago. He had a, a terrible blip in one of the exams and everything turned out fine. So just stick with it. You will be fine. But there are sort of extra complicating factors this year, Liam, which I did rant about Billy Goat Gruff style in the column. So even if kids this year have managed to get a university offer, UCAS has admitted that this year is that the first time that teenagers from the most affluent backgrounds are least likely to have received a university offer. And Claire Marchant, who is the chief executive of UCAS, said proudly that disadvantaged pupils have been put first by universities making offers. And this has been creeping up for years, I think, Liam. But really now where we are is instead of looking at a candidate's academic track record, 
these kids will have been awarded a number, a computer profile, basically featuring their postcode. And we are now saying goodbye to the time-honoured idea that university offers are based on a teenager's knowledge, skills, capacity for hard work, now being replaced by this terribly crude social engineering. And we'll come on to some of these later. We've had some absolutely heart-rending emails. But basically, if you're the very bright son or daughter of a doctor or lawyer who has come from a poor background themselves and managed to buy a decent house, if you're that girl or boy predicted three or four A-stars at A-level and you're applying for medicine or dentistry, jolly good luck to you. We do have a huge number of the world's top universities here in the UK, second only to the mighty US. I mean, the continent of Europe has basically no universities in the top 50 in the world. We have a dozen or so, if not more. But I do think it can get to the point where it's too much when universities are chasing the coin because, of course, foreign students pay often two or three times Mm. more in fees. And then the vice chancellors who are driving these admissions decisions award themselves half a million quid plus with benefits for doing basically a low-risk administrative job with lots of academic ceremony thrown in and prestige for good measure. If you look down the list, looking at some of the universities here, Bristol, an extremely popular university, world-class, 19% foreign students. Cardiff, an excellent Russell Group University, 12% foreign students. City University, 30%. You'd expect that, I guess, because it's in the capital, Durham, 24%, Edinburgh, 33%, St Andrews, 40%. I think you quoted St Andrews in your column, didn't you? Imperial College, one of the best scientific universities, colleges of the University of London in the world, 50% foreign mm. students. Now, I think what was so powerful about your column, Alison, you're not a scientist by any means, with all respect, but you really (laughs) focused on those STEM subjects, didn't you? If we have such a high proportion of overseas students doing STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering and maths at our top, top universities, we are basically exporting so much intellectual capital often to countries that don't always have Britain's best interests at heart. I am an internationalist. You know, I deliberately went to places of higher education where there were lots of international students. I I made those choices. And yet this has surely gone too far. It's surely driven by financial concerns, by the university's financial greed. And it's to the detriment of hardworking British-based students who are getting excluded from these top universities when in previous generations they'd have flown in. As you said, Liam, the numbers are absolutely shocking. Four out of 10 British students are being rejected by Oxford and Cambridge in favour of overseas candidates. What we have, Liam, let's examine this exquisite irony. So in this great social engineering project, which is what our higher education has become, if you are a bright kid from a well-off background, doesn't have to be stupefyingly rich, because let's face it, Liam, we know the rich will always figure things out for their children. So we are talking about children born into professional families and essentially 
The system now is unashamedly biased against kids from so-called affluent backgrounds, regardless of how tremendously hard they've worked. So if you're rich, if you live in a nice place, we're not going to give you a place. But lo and behold, if you are a wealthy and privileged Chinese person or someone from Mumbai, no problem admitting you because you are going to be paying more fees. I'm absolutely raging about this. I mean, just absolutely shocking. And listen, this is from Simon, not his real name, Planet Lawnmower listener, senior lecturer. Simon taught the Master of Science course at one of those universities that we've mentioned. And Simon said, of the 1,200 enrolled students, 900 were from the People's Republic of China. Tutors like me were told not to discuss Hong Kong or Taiwan in class or refer to them on maps. When I criticised the leadership for this censorship, I was cancelled. Simon says universities like the one he worked for have, quote, become drunk on Chinese money. My university, says Simon, had 4,000 applications from Chinese students for 900 places. Can I remind Planet Lawmore listeners co-pilot that Sir Richard Dearlove, the former head of MI6, warned right here on Planet Normal that we could basically regard all Chinese students in the UK as de facto spies. You know, they are sent here and they will be grilled and debriefed when they get back to their country. So our universities, crazy, craven, greedy universities, are giving these students our world-beating STEM knowledge to kids who will export it to an international competitor and sworn ideological enemy while punishing the offspring of some of our most successful British adults by refusing to admit them to the places they deserve in the name of social justice. It's just mad, isn't it? And the reason you and I feel so strongly about this is because we were both the first in our families to go to university, and we can get quite emotional about this. And university, we work really hard to get in from houses with no books, not because our parents didn't love us, but it was just beyond their experience. And university completely transformed our life chances. And it's such a shame that these precious university places, which do involve government money over many, many years and generations, are being exported. Of course, we need international student bodies. Of course, we need to be the world-class centre of excellence in terms of higher education that we have always been and thankfully will continue to be. But in the end, universities are for equipping the next generation of people. Mm. And when knowledge is so key, when the Western world is so dependent on the knowledge economy, on scientific expertise, as you said, so we can prosper to feed and clothe and house our people, to generate the tax revenues on which everything else depends. It seems complete lunacy. Now, you said in a sort of Keir Starmer-esque style policy flourish, and we'll come on to your new boyfriend, Keir Starmer, won't we, co-pilot? <laughs> you said that there should be a cap of 10% on the number of foreign students at any particular university. Mm. And that brought me up short because you are not a kind of cap and limit and restrict and quota kind of person. You're Alison Pearson. You believe in competition in free markets and all the rest of it. And I've been thinking hard since you wrote that column and I read it. And I think I agree with you. I think I agree with you, Alison. Oh, that's a first. 
There we go. Well, I try not to. I try not to. You've got the <laughs> idea of me anyway. There will be hard cases, you know. I mean, how do you define who a foreign person is? Many people have mixed heritage and so on. But this isn't about race at all. It's about where people are applying from, where they are at school, where they have had their formative years of education. And there is a great danger for all the massive benefits that so many world leaders have been to British universities, that so many people like me met so many fantastic people from around the world at university and got to know them and understand them. That's surely a great thing that Britain does for the world and for Britain, by the way. But it reaches a point where we are curtailing, we are stymieing our own ability to equip our own people and survive in an increasingly competitive world as a prosperous nation. That has to be brought to the fore. I think we have to say, so when I went to Cambridge in my year reading English, I was the only person from a comprehensive. And I think there was one person from a direct grant and all the others were from private or public school. The only person at your particular college. Oh, and the only person at my particular college. Yeah. You really were in those days. I mean, this is 40 years ago. It really was meeting people who'd say, what school did you go to? And I remember thinking, why would they know my school? I didn't realise most of them had been to schools that they would all know. <clears throat> so I'm not arguing that there wasn't a need for a big change. There was a need for a big change. I'll tell you what, Liam, what this is really about, nobody, nobody wants to admit this, is that the comprehensive system cannot compete with kids from the grammar schools or the private schools. So to cover up this major political embarrassment, they now have to bring other factors into play. And it's a fact that when we had a flourishing grammar school system in this country, there was no need to seek special favours from backgrounds like ours. They were armed with the knowledge, uh, the same knowledge as their wealthier peers. And the drive. They absolutely gobbled up places at Oxbridge. I mean, if you look at the figures, there was a steep decline in the 50s and 60s in the percentages of public and private school people at Oxbridge because the grammar school kids were acing it. They were absolutely phenomenal. And then, of course, academic selection became evil. I was watching the European Sporting Championships on the TV and I was thinking, it's great, isn't it? We're fine to celebrate brilliant athletes, distance runners, football ballers, sports. That's absolutely marvellous. We all accept this phenomenal competition between these super fit people. But God help you if you try to have competition between super intelligent people. I was also thinking that one of the cleverest guys I knew at Cambridge who had been to Eton and everybody would now say, oh, boo, hiss. But this guy so intelligent and had not long ago won what is the the Fields Medal, which is basically the Nobel Prize for maths. Are you seriously telling me that that individual should surrender their place to some kid from Tower Hamlets with three Bs in the name of social justice? It's such an act of national self-harm. We need every good brain we can get. God knows the state this country is in. We're going to need people in technology, engineering, computing. And, you know, I think it's an absolute grotesque betrayal of our British children's birthright. Let me just read you this. One of many emails from a Telegraph reader. She says, my son is predicted four A stars and he's had three rejections, including Oxford. Where do you go from here with a disappointed and disillusioned 
teenager. Try again next year. It's a complete farce. My son is white British. He's got 10 GCSEs at grade nine. That's wow. the highest possible. You can't get any better. That's the top 2% in the country. And he can't get a university place in the country he was born in. His parents pay British taxes and have done so all their lives. My son wants to study medicine. He wants to work for the NHS when they are crying out for staff. Unbelievable discrimination taking place behind the scenes. Complete farce of a country which puts overseas students first. So that's a really upset mother. And I share her anger. And also, I cannot believe, well... I suppose it is the free market, isn't it? I mean, the vice chancellors all helping themselves to 400 grand plus a year. We've had lots of stories in Liam of jollies to the People's Republic of China with all the lovely lecturers. We can imagine what's going on there. So it's a massive con, really. What's going to happen? Where is this going to end? This is crazy. Anyway, I think you can see I don't agree with it, Liam. It does seem really defeatist and self-defeating, I must say. And there's a lot of news around this week. We've really focused on this because you did write a particularly powerful column on this subject. I think it's worth saying, just before we go to our guest on Planet Normal, that there's also a lot of inflation news around. Inflation's just hit double digits. We've talked a lot about this in the past. And who predicted that? Well, I couldn't possibly comment. But (laughs) what I'd say is this isn't just a cost of living crisis, Alison, with inflation at a fresh 40-year high, hitting double digits for the first time since 1982. I think this is a cost of lockdown crisis because this inflation isn't particularly because of the war in Ukraine. Of course, that's made it worse. you got the Bank of England and others saying, oh, we couldn't predict Vladimir Putin's invasion. That's right. But inflation was already at a 30-year high in January and February before Russia's aggression towards Ukraine. And actually, international commodity prices are coming down now. Oil's down about 30% since its peak earlier this summer. You're starting to see cost pressures easing in the supply chain to some degree. But I think a lot of the inflation that we've had isn't only because of all that money printing that I've written about endlessly in The Telegraph Mm. for 10 years and more. It's also because when you lock a global economy down for two years, you can't just turn the tap back on. The global supply chain, global factories, companies everywhere are still struggling to respond to the massive wave of post-lockdown demand as demand came roaring back. And it's this mismatch between huge demand and the world economy's inability to supply everything that people want where and when they want it that is causing, I think, this ongoing inflation. Inflation will get worse before it gets better. I don't take any pleasure at all in saying that. But I do think once we get through October, that new off-gem energy price cap increase that's going to come, once we get through Christmas, I do think we will start seeing inflation easing. But I don't think we'll be back down at 2%, which is the Bank of England's target, of course, any time during 2023. And while we're above target, the Bank of England is, I wouldn't say obliged, but it will certainly be minded to keep raising those interest rates. So this is a really, really difficult time for lots of not just cash strapped households, but a lot of people who were previously comfortably off. That's exactly right, Liam. And I think, but this isn't a sentence you hear your co-pilot use very often, but Keir Starmer did make a really good impression this week. My God! (laughs) Wow! Don't worry, nobody's listening. It's all right. (laughs) My secret is safe. 
<laughs> but the Labour leader did call for the energy price cap to be frozen at its current level, £1,971 for six months. And he said that this £29 billion policy would be funded by a higher windfall tax on oil and gas company profits and also by keeping the £400 energy rebate. And one thing that really jumped out at me was that this help he was offering wouldn't be targeted at poorer household all consumers of whatever wealth would benefit. Now, I think that was a very cunning move, one to sort of settle the horses. I think most people are feeling really aggrieved at these bills. And I don't think that either Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak has captured the huge mounting public alarm about these frankly horrifying cost of living increases. Now, Liz Truss dismissed Starmer's plan as a sticking plaster, saying her priority is reducing taxes so people can keep more of their own money. But we need a sticking plaster, Liz. In fact, we need bandages. We need something now to staunch the hemorrhage and the fear. And I don't think we've seen from the government, which someone described as a zombie government, there's no sense of urgency there. And it was very interesting, Liam, that an Ipsos poll found that two thirds of voters think the government is not providing enough help with energy prices. And the polling, as I suspected, backed up the fact that Keir Starmer had done very well. Three quarters of Tory voters surveyed in a YouGov poll supported his energy price cap. I'll tell you what, Alison, I've got a lot to say about Labour's energy policy and the problems with it. And we'll come on to that in another week. But for now, let me just say, and I'm doing this from memory, right? Mm. Stop all the clocks. Cut off the telephone. <laughs> prevent the dog from barking with a juicy bone. Silence the pianos and with muffled drum and apologies to Auden because say that Alison Pearson thinks Keir Starmer <laughs> is the one. <laughs> it's painful to imagine that someone would ever have paperwork about child abuse and not do everything in their power to bring the abuser to justice. But I've been speaking to people who say that seems to have happened in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not only was he aware of the abuse, he had heard the confession of it. My colleagues and I on the Telegraph investigations team have been gathering evidence for the best part of a year, but I don't think any of us were prepared for what we'd uncover. You just wonder, what, what is going on here? I'm Catherine Rushton, and this is Call Bethel, a new audio series from The Telegraph. Subscribe now, wherever you get podcasts. Now, over recent weeks, Planet Normal's lent towards Foreign Secretary Liz Truss as this seemingly endless Tory leadership contest has unfolded. We invited former Business Secretary Andrea Lidsom onto the rocket, a key trust backer. And Alison, of course, having previously championed Penny Mordaunt, has written in favour of a trust premiership since Mordaunt failed to gain the backing of enough MPs. But Planet Normal's a broad church, and given that we know many of our listeners are in two minds, we felt it was time to hear from a high-profile Sunak supporter. Ben Houchum was elected as the first Tees Valley's mayor in 2017, an area covering the five boroughs of Darlington, Hartlepool, Middlesbrough, Redcar and Cleveland and Stockton-on-Tees, home to over 700,000 people. 
Still only in his mid-thirties and proudly Teesside born and bred, Ben was a red wall pioneer and early standard bearer in the political turnaround that saw the Conservatives win countless previously Labour-held Westminster seats across the North and Midlands in 2019, seats that still form the bedrock of the Tory majority, seats they must retain to hold on to power. Ben Houchins lobbied hard for Teesside, attracting serious investment to the region, not just from the private sector, but from government as well. I started by asking this rising Tory star for his views on how the leadership contest is going. I think it's going as expected, really. I mean, I've been on the record numerous times to suggest that we probably shouldn't be having this contest at all. And I think largely because we saw what was coming down the line, the cost of living crisis, the price cap increase in October. And it just worried me that we'd, in effect, be navel-gazing for a number of weeks, if not months, as a Conservative Party, which will feel very out of touch and remote to normal people who'll be very concerned about everyday living. And that seems to have come to pass. So it's frustrating we are where we are, but hopefully it won't last much longer. Now, you're very much associated with the policy of levelling up, not just because you're mayor up there on Teesside, but because the North East has really been the epicentre of your party's efforts, of the government's efforts to implement this vital policy. Do you think the Tory party slightly let that agenda slip over recent months and years, not least because of lockdown, not least because of this energy crisis? Well, yeah, exactly that. Other than Brexit, I do think that levelling up was one of the key, if not the key policy that ended up securing a number of seats across the country that we'd never held before. And a lot of those first time Conservative voters heard Boris be very passionate and committed to the levelling up agenda. And so decided to vote for him and the Conservative Party for the first time ever. So I think it's still essential for us to get re-elected in 2024. But you're right. I mean, we had a pandemic in the middle. There's obviously the crisis in Ukraine. And I think one of the reasons, if I was to reflect honestly, why the government have concentrated so much on the successes of Teesside is because it is one of the few places that's been able to demonstrate levelling up. And I think part of that will be to look at Teesside come 2024, hopefully start levels of levelling up elsewhere in the Red Wall and across the country, but point at Teesside as an exemplar of what the government can achieve and say, look, we want to do this more, we want to go even further, and obviously we've had hiccups as to why we haven't been able to, but this is what we want to achieve, this is what levelling up actually is, and if you elect us again, now we're out the pandemic, now we're through the energy crisis, this is what we'll deliver for you. Now, you're seen to be somebody who's more aligned with Rishi Sunak's leadership campaign. His Yorkshire constituency isn't a million miles from your part of the country, Do you think it's time now for him to throw in the towel? It's clear, certainly according to the polls, that Liz Truss is going to win. Wouldn't it do your party and the country in a favour to bring this politicking to an end so we can have a government fully focused on the challenges that we face this autumn, not least energy costs? Well, like I said, I think that should have been the position instead of having a leadership election altogether. I think now we're into the leadership election, we're down to the final two. Actually, I think for the Conservative Party, one of the worst things we could do is have a candidate drop out. And we saw what happened to Theresa May in 2016, 2017. And I think if a candidate was to drop out now, what we would see would be a huge amount of pressure, not just from the Labour Party, but various sections of the media and commentators talking about the legitimacy of the Prime Minister having not really been tested by the membership. It wouldn't necessarily be clear how much support they would garner from the membership. You would inevitably lead on to legitimacy issues, calls for a general election. So actually, I think we do now have to see it through. But I also think there's plenty of time, right? I mean, everybody's very, very concerned about cost of living and especially the price cap increase in October. 
But whoever wins the leadership election, as long as there is something significant done, I do believe there is still time to alleviate a lot of the pressure and put the right things in place ahead of any major impacts on the wider public. There's a poll out today, Ben, I have to put this to you, saying that more Tory party members, albeit, you know, it's only a slim part of the electorate, that more Tory party members would prefer that your parliamentary party had stuck with Boris Johnson with much more support for his continued leadership than for either of the two candidates. Isn't there a danger that the Tories have got rid of a proven vote winner? Well, I talked about this before the leadership campaign again. I mean, it was blindingly obvious that whoever got into the final two, we were going to see polls come out from various people that would show the final two were not going to achieve the same level of support amongst the membership than Boris Johnson. You were always going to see these three-person polls come out with Boris on top. Another reason why I didn't think we should have got rid of him, and also, to be fair, we've seen that reflected in places like Teesside. Lots of first-time Conservative voters completely bewildered, confused and actually quite upset that the Conservative Party got rid of Boris. So whatever happens and whoever wins, I do think we will see a backlash as a result of getting rid of Boris because irrespective of his failings and the one that actually drove him to lose the leadership and have to resign were personal rather than any political or policy decisions that he made. I think we will ultimately be worse off at the general election for not having Boris Johnson. What do you want to see your party do now beyond the politicking and hopefully as we get through this energy crisis? How can the Conservative government really reinvigorate this policy of levelling up? Because let's not beat around the bush, Ben Houch, and the fact that you are Teesside Mayor, the fact that so many voters across the so-called Red Wall seats voted Conservative for the first time in 2019, that was a major reconfiguration of British politics, a huge political achievement really, but now it needs to be consolidated. So what do you want to see to put some real meat on these bones? Because a lot of people feel levelling up so far, it's nothing but a good slogan. Well, it's a very easy thing to say and a very difficult thing to do, but it's ultimately down to delivery. If you actually think about it, it's going to take a new administration, even if you are optimistic, a couple of months to bed in. have got six months before a general election might as well be a write-off because the civil service will slow down. The parties will start to look towards campaigning at the general election. It basically leaves this new administration come September just over a year to implement any real change. And I think what people need to see is they need to see real demonstrable physical differences in their local environment, in their local communities, that will look like levelling up. Now, that's not going to be complete. That's not going to see levelling up as a finished job within the next 12 months. But as you rightly say, lots of areas are not like Teesside. They've not seen any demonstration of levelling up whatsoever yet. So we need some spades in the ground. Infrastructure projects need to be starting. People need to physically be able to see, touch, smell, taste the benefits of levelling up so that the government could go into the next general election and say, look... It has been a difficult four years for various reasons, but actually you can now see the green shoots of levelling up. And if you re-elect us again, we'll continue with that. And by the way, here's this great example in Teesside that has succeeded over four years. We're starting this journey in your area, so stick with us now we've come through the hard times. Let's talk a little bit about Teesside. Tell us what's happening with the Freeport on Teesside, which in fairness to him was one of Rishi Sunak's original ideas. Tell us what's happening with the Teesside Development Corporation, the carbon capture project and so on, the potential for a huge wind farm factory on Teesside that can then help to build the biggest wind farm in the world, which is planned on Dogger Bank, a joint policy between the British and the Norwegian governments. Give us a little update. 
I don't know, that was a pretty good good update, if I say so myself, Liam, to fill in some of the detail, I suppose. With the support we've had from central government, particularly Boris and Rishi individually, it's meant that we're able to get the support we need to generate some really new investments. So fundamentally that means the largest brownfield site in Western Europe, which is the Teesworks site, which is a major part of the Teesside Freeport, which is also the largest and first freeport in the UK since leaving the EU. That fundamentally means that we are more competitive for attracting large-scale manufacturing, the likes of which we haven't seen in this country for decades, on a more competitive basis with North America and the Far East, certainly with mainland Europe. It means that with the Freeport, you have lower taxes that will help stimulate capital-intensive, labour-intensive industries. So things like you don't pay business rates for five years, you don't pay any employees' national insurance contributions for a period of three years within a 10-year period. There's uncapped capital allowances. So all of a sudden, a very capital-intensive project is much more cost-effective to do in the UK and specifically the Teesside Freeport than anywhere else. Now, what that's led to, it's led to a number of offshore wind manufacturers wanting to locate in Teesside so that they can manufacture the products providing UK content, then going into the offshore wind farms that the UK government have been licensing for many, many years now to try and get up to 40 gigawatts by 2040. So one thing that we have done over the last two or three years, which is our niche when it comes to levelling up, is trying to make that Teesside is the place for the UK for net zero technologies on an industrial scale. We've achieved that. And now we're thinking it's not hyperbole to say there's no reason why we couldn't have that reputation on a global scale as well. And that's worked because we've got the local skills because of our history in steel and iron making. It's because we've got the land available, we've got the free port, we've got government support. The stars are aligning in Teesside at the moment and we need to keep that momentum going for as long as we can. Obviously, you're a politician, but I'd say as a journalist, somebody who's made documentaries in your part of the country, keeps a close eye on what's happening. I talk to business people, international investors who are putting real money into Teesside at the moment. There is definitely stuff happening on the commanding heights of levelling up. But is enough happening when it comes to, you know, making sure there are local bus routes, making sure there is you know, proper broadband coverage, making sure that in some of the towns of the country, as opposed to cities, that high streets can survive. They're not being, you know, constantly hollowed out. Yeah, so I kind of take that question in two parts, really, Liam, because the first part for me is what we are doing in Teesside now is what I call kind of phase one of levelling up. It helps to solve the cause rather than the symptoms of some of the ultimate failings we have as a local economy going back decades now. And because of those paternalistic industries in the likes of steelmaking in particular, what you have to do in a place like Teesside is really shake up the local economy. I mean, spraying around you know tens of thousands of pounds to small community groups and trying to deal with the causes of the problems we ultimately have in Teesside is not going to change anything. Now, I'm not saying that they're not important and need dealing with, but ultimately you'll be throwing more and more money at a problem that won't be solved until you solve the fundamentals. And if you look at the investment we're getting, all of those things that we've just talked about is only actually a small fraction of what we expect to achieve. And we're already talking about having secured more than £2.5 billion of private sector investment as a result of the Development Corporation and the Freeport. That's at least about 4,500 direct jobs in a place like Teesside. But those are jobs that are well paid. The average wage in the Tees Valley is just over £25,000 a year. These jobs are averaging £40,000, £50,000 a year with a cost of living in the northeast compared to the southeast, which is much, much cheaper. Now, what does that mean? Well, that allows you to help solve some of those issues around deprivation and poverty, assuming you can put the right education provision in place, because all of a sudden people have more opportunity. They have more money in their pockets to look after themselves and their family, that means they've got more money to spend with our independent shops in our local high streets. 
So all of that is the fundamental that underpins the regeneration of a regional economy that's been on its knees for a long, long time. But that has to be paired with additional finance for better education provision, especially post-16, and government have devolved the adult education budget to me, along with the other metro mayors as well. And just recently, the government have just issued us with just over £300 million to be able to invest into public transport, from cycling, walking, buses, railways... And the reason for that is because if we're creating these economic centres of tens of thousands of well-paid jobs significantly above the national average wage, never mind the local average wage, there are lots of people who don't drive to work. And so we have to have better public transport so that people don't feel remote from the job market, so they have better connectivity to be able to take a job. Because there is a huge amount of rural poverty in a place like Tees Valley because they have no connection to economic centres. So proper public transport is all part of the plan. But again, it's pointless putting a bus on from a rural area with no connection, if they've got nothing to connect to, if there are no jobs and there's no investment, then there's ultimately no way out of poverty. So we've very much concentrated on the investment job side, and then that does make it much easier, one, with the community to be able to get out of those levels of deprivation and some of those complex issues. But actually, it makes an easier argument with government when you're asking for funding, because you can say, well, these are the jobs that are here. Here's the community that's trying to access it. It's a failure of infrastructure that areas like Teesside have been neglected for many, many decades now. Therefore, the government does have a role to play to be able to bridge those infrastructure issues that helps unleash the private sector. You are sticking with Rishi Sunak in terms of your preferred leadership candidate. You think it should come to its natural conclusion rather than being curtailed. So what is the case for Rishi Sunak now? Well, I actually think it's much closer than people think it is. I'm not suggesting that Rishi's streaking ahead and all the polls are untrue, but I have heard some very knowledgeable people talk about the issues around weighting of polls. What you often found, and I always thought this was the case, the deeper we went into the competition between whoever the candidate was with Rishi getting in front of members, Rishi's extremely, extremely impressive. His depth of knowledge, his understanding, his competence always comes through in the hustings. And we're finding that, right? I mean, where there are hustings, invariably the undecided members are ending up coming out of those hustings and and plumbing for Rishi. So I think it's going to be much, much closer. You know, Rishi ultimately has to deal with a lot of the smears that come out. Obviously, there's his personal background with the wealth of his family. And that's something I think he's acutely aware of. But I also think he's able to point to places like Teesside that he's supported to say, well, irrespective of my personal background, I do understand areas that have felt left behind, those levelling up areas that Boris has talked about and connected with so well, and look at what I've been able to do and look at what more I could do if I was Prime Minister. Isn't there a danger that very talented people like Rishi Sunak, who could do plenty of other things with their life, that we kind of drive them out of politics if we're too critical of them. So isn't there a danger that if he doesn't win this leadership contest, that he ends up leaving the Commons, leaving politics and going back to his previously very successful life in business? I agree with you, Liam. I hope not, because he does have a lot to give the country. And I think whatever role, if he was offered one in government, he would do extremely well at. This, having said that, I've got a reasonably good relationship with Liz, probably a little bit less so now I've come out for Rishi. But, you know, Liz is extremely impressive. She gets it as well. She understands Redwall areas like Teesside, especially around wanting to go further and deeper on things like Freeport. So, again, I'm also in a very fortuitous place that I think Teesside will be pretty well off irrespective of who wins because they are both allies of places like ours. But there is a risk, and and this is just a personal one. Rishi's never spoken to me about this, and like I say, I don't think it would necessarily be true. But there is a risk that when you have high flyers with extremely impressive CVs and backgrounds that have come from elsewhere, which is not as common as we would like, right? You know, lots of members of the public talk Mm. to us about 
MPs and politicians with life experience. I mean, Rishi has had other careers which he's done extremely well in. Politics would be poorer for it. And, you know, we need people from more diverse backgrounds with that level of expertise. And then you also look at, well, where is, where's the rest of the talent within the Conservative Party? Rishi is one of those talents. And if we were to lose him, then as a party, we would be weaker for it. It's got pretty punchy between them, though, hasn't it? It's got a bit spiky, a bit personal. Can they patch it up, Ben? Yeah, I mean, this gets overplayed a bit, right? I mean, you have a contest for a reason and people are there to put their best foot forward. People are there to challenge each other, challenge the other contender for leadership. Actually, I think that's really healthy. And that's why I don't think either candidate should drop out because it means as you go through that process, whoever wins the process is more robust for it. And like you say, whether it's the media or whether it's other politicians, the fact that there is a transparency, that there is a scrutiny of these people through the contest means that whoever comes out the other side of it is fighting fit and ready to ultimately lead the country, never mind the Conservative Party. So I think what's ultimately happened is it's not actually as a spicy a contest as people think it is. And then I think there's been this kind of collective kind of hysteria that all of a sudden this is like a, quite a nasty contest it's really really not if anything it's quite mild and I think they could be much much more vicious with each other but again holding each other to account is not a bad thing because like I say come the end of the contest nobody can then say ah these people weren't really tested and whoever's won isn't really up to the job because I think it's fair to say that it will be a rigorous and, and full process that they'll have been put through by the time it's finished. Ben Houchin great to have you on Planet Normal. Pleasure thanks for having me on. Can we vote for Ben Houch and Liam? Oh, see, you've gone off Keir Starmer now, haven't you? <laughs> You're so fickle, Alison. Crikey. I was saying Keir Starmer wasn't as bad as he usually is. I wasn't saying he was my new boyfriend. As you know, my boyfriends tend to have a rather unfortunate history, a very, very brief period of holding my affection. He said lots of very interesting things. I agree that the Tories are going to need to show some evidence of levelling up to have any chance of hanging on to any Red Wall seats. And Ben Houch and said, didn't he, that he thought the Conservatives would be worse off at the next election for not having Boris Johnson. I think, Liam, that that is true in the red wall seats, but I am also equally convinced that Boris would have been a liability in the sort of Tiverton and Honiton, in the sort of more Lib Dem end of the Conservative Party. So it's very difficult. But in the past week or so, we've had a number of emails from Planet Normal listeners who are supporting Rishi. And I'll put my hand up and say, I think we probably haven't been as fair to him as we should have been. And that's partly because I think it's become clear that Liz Truss does seem to have an unassailable lead. The latest Conservative home poll, just as we're recording, has Truss on 60%, Sunak on 28% with 12% undecided. I have spoken to a lot of neighbours where I live and they like Rishi very much. My doubts, as I've always said to you, Liam, is that he seems to have been very complicit with the Treasury. He seems to have been absorbed by the machine. And what I see in Liz Truss, about whom you know I do still have doubts, but I see in her someone who is prepared to make change. And God knows, looking at all the terrible state that various of our institutions are in, I want someone who can make trouble for those people. I want a fighter. And I think Rishi's charming. I think he's incredibly clever. He's a little bit too smooth and amicable for me. I think we need a street fighter. I think there's a lot in that, Alison. Rishi Sunak obviously has an astonishing CV. He's achieved an astonishing amount. Okay, he was given lots of opportunities early in his life, but you still have to take those opportunities. And I do have a lot of respect for him. It's kind of my job as a economic commentator to kick the shins of the Treasury and the Bank of England. And that's what I do. And I don't apologise for that. 
and I've always had good sort of personal relations with Rishi Sunak when we've met in the real world, if you like. But I think it's worth saying that this is somebody who seems to use incredible institutions as an elevator, burnishing his personal brand as he passes through them. He became chancellor at a very young age, but he hasn't done anything to shape or mould that institution to his will. And that's what genuine political leaders do. They shape institutions to their will. They are not starry-eyed and beguiled by the institutions as they add those institutions to an already glittering CV. And Rishi Sunak may become that kind of person. He may become a genuine game changer, somebody who makes the political weather. But he's not that yet. I think it's partly because of his youth and his relative inexperience, not because of his lack of intelligence or his lack of compassion and genuine concern. If this guy didn't really believe in wanting to make the world a better place, he wouldn't sully himself with the knocks and setbacks and hassle of British politics and getting hammered and getting his wife criticised in the tabloid newspapers and so on. I do genuinely think he cares. I do think he could be a good prime minister in the future. And I, for one, sincerely hope he does hang around in British politics when he loses this leadership election. Just in from a friend who was at the Scottish Hustings yesterday, he said, Rishi so overpromised last night as if he knew he wasn't going to win. Liz was steely yet slightly worried looking as if she knew she was going to win. Both very, very good. So I think that this process has actually been useful despite us mocking it and saying it should stop. I think it has revealed various relative strengths and weaknesses. Now it's on to our listener emails, the fantastic messages that you send to us, and we absolutely love reading them. Inevitably, this week, a lot about A-levels from parents and people at universities. This spoke to me, Liam. Kat says, as a comprehensive school child who worked hard, I was the first in my family and one of only three in my school to go to university. Years later, my privately educated children faced prejudice and higher grade offers because of my success. Ridiculous, because I personify the social mobility governments bang on about. But when you get there, you or your children are punished for it. So what was all that work for? Miles says, my daughter gets her A-level results today. She needs AAB for the course she set her heart on. However, she has very bright friends who wanted to study medicine and dentistry. Like my daughter, they are bright, personable, hardworking products of a grammar school. Four of them received no offer from any of the universities they applied to. These girls are predicted and will achieve three or four A-stars at A-level their sin is that they are too middle class to be considered. What a waste of talent. This is from Steve. Dear Planet Normal, I love the podcast, but must confess, I'm hashtag ready for Rishi. And I've already voted as such, despite the momentum for loopy Liz that I constantly hear you both prattling on about. Crikey. You're obviously a right pair of trussocks, says Steve. <laughs> However, it seems to me that there are three longer-term considerations being overlooked by Lizraelites. Oh, very there, good. Such as your good selves. Firstly, given prevailing economic conditions, business may simply put any tax concessions straight into a cash survival fund or towards meeting immediate rising costs, rather than to drive new investment for growth, as Liz anticipates. 
Secondly, lower tax will mostly benefit the wealthy who are typically Tory voters anyway. It'll do nothing to build up the foundations of the red wall needed to win another term. Thirdly, imagine a Truss versus Starmer versus Ed Davey leadership TV debate. It would look to the general public like a geeky version of Love Island with cardboard cutout contestants. <laughs> this, in my view, would reduce the next general election to a lottery in which the least worst candidate would be likely to win. I'm a long-term conservative, says Steve, who wants the party to stay in power with a positive long-term vision for the country, Rishi at least presents as a credible human being, which in the current cohort of party leaders is a significant differentiator that makes him electable. Still, if the Trussocks do prevail as expected, the only good news seems to be that the greatest frost since 1709 will be prominent in government. Lord David Frost, of course. Good preparation for the forthcoming winter of discontent. Optimistically yours, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Never mind the Trussocks. All the prattling on. <laughs> he meant you. I don't prattle on, obviously. Surely eloquent sentiments, cogently expressed. We've had a lot of praise for my co-pilot this week. Rich says, commentators like Liam Halligan were warning of inflation at least a year ago. It seems incredible the Bank of England dismissed them. Transitory. Now the Treasury orthodoxy is that if we want to tackle inflation, the last thing we should do is listen to people like Liam. And this was a lovely message. I think it was on one of the places the podcast goes out. You know me, I don't understand what a podcast is, Liam. I think it might have been on Apple iTunes. And this is from someone with the name Heard But Not Perceived. You had a holiday for two weeks and I felt my life suddenly devoid of sensible, informative commentary on what normal, average humans think. Next time, please get an alternative pilot for the rocket. We miss you. In my two weeks normality void, I was worried that I might start to believe the other increasingly infuriating UK legacy media options <laughs> pushing their woke and cancel culture agendas. But I held in there. Well done. We got back. Don't worry. Planet Normal's back. <laughs> this is from Martin. Dear Alison and Liam, over the past two years, the rocket of right thinking has brilliantly exposed egregious data misuse, fanciful modelling and the weaponization of fear. No prattling on here. <laughs> It's provided a platform for many rational, thoughtful, world-class scientists who questioned lockdown and the origins of COVID. Their punishment has been cancellation, social media annihilation, ostracisation from the establishment scientific community. Their well-reasoned voices shut out of so-called authoritative journals by a partisan peer review process. Exactly the same playbook, says Martin, has been in use for more than two decades in gagging the thousands of reputable scientists cogently critical of the prevailing climate apocalypse orthodoxy. Rather than having their arguments tested, they are branded mad, bad or deniers with very best wishes and thanks for all you do. Never let it be said that Planet Normal isn't a broad church and gives voice to all kinds of opinions. We're a kind of crazy cathedral views, <laughs> aren't we? Nicola says, Dear Alison and Liam, I am a huge fan of the podcast and refer to you collectively as the voice of reason. I am also a strong supporter of Rishi Sunak. I fear the two are fast becoming mutually exclusive and you are making it so. Your unfettered support for that woman oh my God. and your insistence that Rishi step aside together with your almost weekly rant about the fact that his supporters are dim, idiots, misguided, stupid. Nicola, I don't think we've said anything like that. I could go on, she says, but you only have to listen back to see how incredibly insulting you have been to people like me. There is no guarantee that that woman is going to win the leadership election 
election. The polling, in my opinion, is way off base. I have many friends who have a vote and not one of them is voting for Truss. I suspect the Rishi support could be the silent majority. And that, in my opinion, is a very conservative value. Of course, if she wins, we will all have to take a deep breath and hope we haven't ended up with a Boris Mark too. I do agree the leadership process has taken far, far too long and it could have been sewn up in a matter of weeks, not months. But the process is nearing the end and it would be a relief to tune into your excellent podcast and not find myself being harangued for engaging in a democratic process. With all best wishes, Nicola. Nicola, we have made amends, copious amends in this episode, haven't we, co-pilot? We've really had our card marked this week, haven't we? Crikey. Absolutely. Rishi Sunak, what a marvellous candidate he is, Halligan. Honestly, can't find any fault with him. He's marvellous. But not as marvellous as Keir Starmer, apparently. And on that bombshell, (laughs) that's it from Planet Normal for another week. Remember when you used to fancy Emmanuel Macron? (laughs) As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week, it's my turn. And I tell you what, in a final act of contrition, I'm going to give email of the week and one of those rare as rocking horse poo planet normal mugs to ready for Rishi Steve. Steve, you've done it. Email us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk, put in the subject heading mug winner and give us your postal address and a planet normal mug will wing its way to you at all speed. All is sweetness and light between the Trussocks and the... The Lizraelites. Sunakists. And the Ready for Rishis. Don't start singing the Desmond Decker. We'll <laughs> never be able to shut you up. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps others to find us. And I've had a bit of ups and downs this week and I've been reading some of your absolutely lovely messages like, like the one I read out and it, it really does keep us going. So please do leave us a review. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.